Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Sir John Hargrave. He's the CEO of Media Shower and the author of a new book called Mind Hacking. How's it going? Should I call you Sir John or John? Yeah, Sir John, uh, that shows your experience with royalty. You would not want to call me Sir Hargrave. Uh, it's always Sir and then the first name. If you meet Paul McCartney, it's Sir Paul, not Sir McCartney. I, I watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, that's all you need to know, really, about royalty <laughs> can be learned from Game of Thrones. So how are you royal? Well, I am not actually a knight, but I tried to become one by writing the Queen of England some years ago and saying, I would like to be knighted. And she uh, wrote me back a very polite letter and said, well, you have to do something honorable or noble. And I thought, well, that's too much work. So I thought I would just do it the easy way. I went to my county courthouse where you can pay a small fee and have your name legally changed. Because I thought Sir John Hargrave just sounded so much classier. Don't you, Brett? I, I think it's, um, without having a British accent, I think it's off, off. It throws you off. Well, even I better. I totally expected you to have a British accent. <laughs> well, even better. So I'm subverting your expectations. So there you go. They, uh, they were kind enough to let me change my name, and uh, here I am, Sir John Hargrave. Interesting. I wonder how many people are going to try that now. That's a very good question. There might have to be new legislation passed. Hmm. <laughs> I'm calling for, I'm, I'm writing my state to request the approval of a drone hunting season. <laughs> With all of these Amazon bots and everything that are on their way, I figure we'd have to thin the herd once in a while. Yeah. Anyway. So that would work like skeet shooting, basically. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking you could also start developing like electronic interference weapons and just like knock them out of the sky with blasts of interference. Anyway, anyway. So the book you have now is uh, it's called Mind Hacking. Yes. So uh, there's a lot of like people talk about life hacks and, and uh, productivity hacking and all of this. What for you is a mind hack? Well, we use hacking in the traditional sense, uh, the, the true hacker sense of a, a helpful tip or trick or technique to accomplish some goal. And the basic premise behind mind hacking, Brett, is that your brain can be reprogrammed. The book is all about how to see your mind like a computer, like a technology, and learn how to debug your mind to get rid of the negative thought loops that hold you back, and then how to reprogram it, like reprogramming a computer to help you feel great and achieve everything that you want. Okay, now that it sounds kind of um, self-helpish, uh, but in the very intro of the book, you talk about your own history as an addict or an alcoholic. Is this, I'm not off base here, am I? <laughs> no, that's right. So we call it a self-help book for geeks. And I am a geek, first and foremost. I love technology. I started programming when I was 12 and had the first generation of personal computers in my bedroom. And what I've always wanted is a self-help book that really talk to me as someone that loves technology. And so that's what we do, trying to, again, view the brain or the mind as a programmable computer. 
And I got into this because of my own history with alcoholism and addiction. And the first chapter in the book is about uh, an experience I had where the Secret Service visited my doorstep and how that was really a wake-up call for me that maybe things weren't on the right track. And that was the beginning of my journey to sobriety. Along the way, I learned different ways of dealing with my mind and of reprogramming my mind. And it's those techniques, those hacks that I'm really passionate about sharing with your audience. See, and to me, that lends true credibility because I, I'm an addict. You know, I've been through hell. And the idea of programming a productive, normal person's mind seems like something people probably do regularly. But... <laughs> To reprogram my mind is, I mean, I know what an utter feat it is to overcome that kind of uh, personality uh, proclivity for yeah. self-destruction. So this this immediately intrigued me. Yeah, you and I have minds that are wired to repeat in obsessive loops. Right? No matter That's how the... much it hurts. Yeah, that's the addict's mindset is obsessive repetition. And you don't have to be an addict. There's plenty of people who suffer from anxiety or depression or thoughts of low self-esteem or hopelessness or failure. Those are all negative recurring loops. But the good news is about the way that we're wired is that we can take those obsessive loops and turn them around for the good. Um, the uh, podcaster Chris Hardwick talks about the geek brain is also wired for that sort of obsessive craving to find out everything there is to know about some geeky area of interest. And he says, you can take those laser-like powers of focus and train them on your own mind. I love that phrase. You can take those laser-like powers of focus and train them on your own mind. So those obsessive repetitive loops can be turned around and used as your friend instead of your foe. You can literally become friends with your mind instead of enemies with it. You can turn those loops into something that's positive and moves you in the right direction instead of something that's negative. Have you learned that yourself? Surely you have with all your sobriety. <laughs> well, let's see. I would say that I have not mastered the idea of doing it to myself. I have learned how to allow other people to break my loops, how mm. to rely on others, like sponsors and family, and letting people in enough to hack my brain, which in and of itself took some programming. Yeah. But left to my own devices for long periods of time, I still go into loops of obsession. And these days it ends up being all-night coding sessions rather than massive intake of narcotics but uh but it's still it's still it scares me when it happens that's interesting i learned something just now with what you said and and you're right that calling a sponsor calling a friend calling someone is a way of helping break yourself out of that obsessive loop that's uh it's like the control alt delete of your mind you're a Mac guy, so maybe you don't understand, but you know, Windows <laughs> We reboot. People. We reboot. We hold down the power button. 
So just rip the cord out of the wall. But that's what it is, like that calling people. And that's why we tell people in early sobriety to make sure they have someone they can call. And then, as you said, to get yourself in the habit of calling them, of actually picking up the phone. Yeah, that's actually when you first when you first start, it's it's really hard to get your brain to stop what it's doing and make that call because you know that that's going to end. Like just hearing someone else tell you how dumb you are, not in those words, but explain that, you know, you're being crazy. That's not easy to to force yourself to do. It's so difficult. And I have a story in the book of when I decided to get sober, the best decision I made, other than throwing all my booze and drugs away, was calling my friend Mike. So Mike had several years of sobriety. He was really active in 12-step groups. And I don't know what I was expecting when I called him, maybe just a sympathetic ear. But Mike was like, great, let's go to a meeting. And he instantly got me out of my head and into interacting with other people. And he held me accountable, and he still does today. And what's so useful about that is reaching out to someone shows you that you need help. You need the assistance of other people. You need collaboration. And no matter what you're trying to do, it doesn't apply just to getting sober. It also applies to starting a business or creating a new project or developing relationships. You need help. You need collaboration with like-minded people. So that's one of the fundamental tenets of mind hacking. So yeah, so the book moves on pretty quickly from you know the intro background story into some serious uh, kind of exploration of this idea of programming. So if you wanted to summarize the book for people maybe that don't relate to anything we've said thus, thus far, um, <laughs> what would you say the, uh, the end goal of all of these techniques would be? Well, first of all, let me draw an analogy, which is like going to the movies. So if you go to the movies, if you're like me, when the previews, the trailers are, are, are showing, you're basically screwing around. You're making jokes. You're checking your phone. You're like not, you're halfway paying attention. And then the movie comes on and you sit back in your seat. And at the beginning, I'm a movie geek. So I start, you know, like analyzing the cinematography and the music and the direction and all that. And then if it's any good, you get lost in the movie. You just go down deep into that level where you are identifying with the movie. And if it's a good movie, you forget where you are. You're like one with the movie. Our minds are like that movie. And every day we're walking around caught up in this personal movie that is our lives. It's our mind, the stream of thoughts and experience. And if we can learn to pull ourselves back from that movie, to pull ourselves out of it for just a moment, then we can start to see that we're not our mind, we're actually something beyond our mind. There's kind of two things. There's something called you, and then there's something called your mind. Once we start to habitually learn that trick, that hack, to pull ourselves out and see our minds as separate from us, we can start to realize, I don't have to believe everything my mind thinks. I can reprogram my mind, I can actually like look at it, see the crazy stuff that it's thinking and fix it. Like I would like debug computer code and reprogram it to do 
what I want it to do and take me where I want to go in my life. I, I like that separation to think of uh, to think of it as a computer and a user, because that is uh, a lot of times I do just accept that I am I'm running my program. I am the program. That's what I do. Uh, but yeah, learning to debug that is uh, it's empowering, I think. So empowering. It's the greatest feeling. And there's actually a feeling of relief that you get from it, especially if you have habitually negative thoughts like, you know, uh, anxiety or depression. Stepping back from that and realizing, wait a minute, I'm not that thing that's going on. That is my mind. And I am in control of that. There's a weird kind of relief. You can kind of breathe easier when you make that effort. One of the hacks in the book is, um, we call them mind games, but they're exercises that you practice throughout the day and you score points like a video game. So one of them is just to ask yourself, what was my mind just thinking? So throughout the day, as many times as you can, you try to ask yourself, what was my mind just thinking? And when you do that, it's like a push up. It's like an exercise to pull yourself away from your mind try to look at it. And every time you do that, there's a little sense of relief or a little sense of freedom from being trapped or, or locked in that obsessive identification with the mind. And that's what we're after. So in the, uh, let's see, what section am I looking at? It's the, I'm in Welcome to the Matrix, but I can't remember what chapter I'm in. Anyway, it, uh, you have a chart where it talks about the, the thoughts that you might realize you're thinking and then the new loop that you want to program. Yeah. And it goes from self-doubt and, and self-criticism to absolute confidence. Is that is that absolute confidence uh, an aspiration, or do you actually want your mind to say that it is utterly confident? Well, again, let me give you a personal story. So I used to be very uncomfortable talking with people. And when I was talking with them, I would constantly be thinking about myself. I would be like, am I standing up straight? Am I like, are my teeth, do I have a piece of kale in my teeth? Does my breath stick? Like I would just be coming up with all these things and I could never really pay attention to what they were thinking or what they were saying. And then I started to develop this positive loop of I'm good with people. That's it. That's the thought is I'm good with people. I'm a good conversationalist. I can talk with people. I'm good with people. And so now when I talk with people, whenever I start to feel myself slipping into that habit of like, what are they thinking of me? Am I standing? Am I, do I, does my body odor smell? Of course, body odor smells. That's why they call it body odor. But I then am able to say I'm good with people. And through repetition of that thought again and again, I'm able to actually be pretty good with people. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. But again, in order to do that, I had to first become aware that I had all these thoughts going on when I was talking to someone. They weren't really at the level of conscious awareness. So we have to develop that awareness of the mind first before we can start to debug and see the negative stuff that's going on. And then we can consciously say, what's the positive loop that I want to put in there instead does that make does that make sense it does it does and and i can definitely relate that's uh I've, I've experienced that situation in many similar ones my my concern in my own life has always been that 
Well, I used to think I was really good with people. I used to think I was really good at reading people. It turned out, after I got clean and had been there for a few years, that I was really bad at it. <laughs> and and for me, it was a matter of accepting that and just... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'll, When I talk to people at a party, I'll say, sorry, I, I'm not good at talking to people, but I'm okay with it. Like, I'm not nervous anymore. Yeah, I just accept that if they don't like me, well, I had low expectations anyway, but I don't really, I don't know, I don't fidget. And I, I, I used to have that exact same thing where I found myself focusing so hard on what my mouth might be doing while yeah. they were talking that I actually ended up not knowing what my mouth was doing. Yeah, when you're high, you think you're good with everybody, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I'm life of the and party. Then, and then you realize later, oh no, I was just an idiot. Uh, so I can relate to that too, Brett. I think that, um, you know, when you are getting that perspective now and saying, okay, maybe I'm not so good with people. The other thing is not disclaiming yourself and saying, well, I'm sorry, I'm no good with people. Like, for example, I went recently to this event and this woman stood up in front of the crowd and she started talking and then she said, I'm sorry, I'm not very good at public speaking. And then she went on and she gave a great talk, like it was actually a very good speech. If she hadn't said, I'm no good at speaking and implanted that idea in everyone's minds, all of us would have said, well, she's a great speaker. But now <laughs> we've like got this expectation that, oh, she's not good or she at least doesn't think she's very good. Therefore, she must not be good. So never disclaim, like always just be yourself. And internally, you're reprogramming that to say, I am good with people. I am a good public speaker. Will you be a perfect public speaker the first time out? No, it will take practice and it takes doing it. But it also takes that belief behind it, that layer of belief to say, I am good and I'm getting better every time I do this. I think, I think the concern for me is that if I tell myself I'm good at this and then later receive harsh criticism, I don't react well if I don't expect it mm. and it I have thin skin or at least <laughs> I historically have I'm getting yeah. better at it but like setting myself up to be torn down is difficult for me if I say I'm working on being good at this and I expect that I have faults yeah I'm a little better off then yeah so criticism is very difficult and uh, here's an example from my life. Got this new book, Mind Hacking. We're making it available for free online. And as part of building up this initial list of beta testers, we sent out invites to readers of Goodreads, which is this uh, you know, uh, well-known book review site. So we sent all these invites out to Goodreads readers and we said, hey, check out the book. It's free. You can read the entire thing for free. And we'd love it if you'd post a review. And you can be honest. You know, we didn't ask people to post a good review, a bad review, just post a review. First review, five stars. I'm like, awesome. I spent three years of my life writing this book. I'm really happy. Second review, two stars. Two stars. Two stars. Who gives a book two stars? Like, a book has to, like, have a hate crime in it to warrant <laughs> two stars. And the woman says, I got to the first chapter, and then I just decided it's not for me. And I'm like, you didn't even read the book. You only read one chapter. I did like the headline. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think that for me, that was like, really, lady? And I had this temptation to obsess on that. 
And now that I'm talking about it with such emotion, maybe I did obsess <laughs> on it. But I really had to consciously say, you know what? This is okay. Like this is part of online. Is not every nothing gets five perfect five star. Nothing. Like you have to accept some negative reviews along with the positive ones. Since then, they've been great, which has been awesome. But I think that for me, I have to consciously say, I'm a good author. I am a good author, and I can write, and I can look at all these things that you know people have told me the feedback that I've gotten. I have to remind myself of that, and people are also going to leave negative reviews as part of the game. People are going to criticize you as part of the game, but that doesn't mean that the book's not good, and it doesn't mean that I'm a good author. I'm sorry to get all Tony Robbins on you here, Brett. This is sounding very self-helpy, but I wanted to just say I, I relate to that. The first review, the first rating that this podcast on the current network got was one star with no review, just one star. <laughs> just one. They didn't even, they didn't even give you any, any like well, see, constructive here's, here's criticism. Here's the thing is I hadn't published an episode on it yet. Yeah. So they rated the idea of the podcast. So I wrote it off as, you know, <laughs> so, someone being a dick and uh, it still bugged me. It still sat in the back of my head. I got a one star review on something I didn't do yet. Yeah. yeah. So learning to laugh at it like this, too, I think is really helpful. It's really good. It's really good if you can do that. But I see these things as like strength training. You know, these those those types of experiences are what strengthen your resolve to say, OK, I am good with people or I am a good podcaster or this is a good show. I do have something to contribute to the world. When people come out like that, I see them as my teachers. I really do. I see them as like, they are making me stronger, not only in that they're giving me feedback that may be true, like there may be something to their criticism, not in the case of the guy who gave you one star, <laughs> but they may be giving me something that's genuinely helpful. At our company, Media Shower, we do debriefs with, with customers. If a customer decides to leave us, we try to get them on the phone and say, what? how could we have done this differently? That's one of the most difficult disciplines to listening to a customer uh, tell you everything you did wrong. And our natural human inclination is to say, you know, I, uh, that person is crazy. Yeah, like, we didn't do anything wrong. It's to get defensive. But we try to make it a habit. It's part of our company culture to say, what did we bring to the table? What can we learn from this? How can we make our product better? And we often find, okay, there is something here. There is something we need to improve. And that to me is is how to live life. I would I would put a caveat on that. Uh, I, there are companies that I've worked with that put way too much credence in what, you know, customers that shouldn't have been there to begin with have to say. And, you know, they do their surveys and they compile the data and they make their decisions based on, like, mean averages of uh, like rating like like one through five how did we do with this and it's not you know, like what you do makes sense because you are actually listening you're conversing um but some of the uh some of the larger companies you take at&t for example yeah the feedback they get after someone's been through their customer support is never going to be friendly i wouldn't make decisions based on it other than improve my customer support i suppose Anyway. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you said sometimes they shouldn't have been customers anyway. And that's one of the questions we ask ourselves is, was this a customer we should have taken on? And sometimes the answer is no. And we try to be conscious about some customers are right for us and some aren't. 
And so in those cases, we try to identify what were the warning signs, what were the red flags that we <laughs> should have seen in this sales process that said, this is not a good fit for us. And we frequently now turn people away if it seems like it's we're not going to be successful together. Yes. as After 10 years of being a freelancer, I finally learned how to do that. Yeah, it's hard, right? How to pick up those you, flags. You never want to turn away business, and yet you realize taking on the wrong customers can paradoxically ruin your business. Well, and we, we run a dog rescue here, me and my wife, and uh, and we do the same kind of thing now with uh, with adoptees, mm -hmm. or adopters, sorry, adopters. Uh, like, basically, it's a conversation. We don't just ask them to fill out a form and then judge them based on that. Yeah. We ask them to fill out a form that starts a conversation, and we know the red flags at this point. We've been doing it for years. So, like, you can immediately tell if that dog is going to be back in your hands a week later and, yeah. and just avoid the situation entirely. Yeah, you develop a good intuitive sense of it as well. But it helps to have a checklist of questions. Oh, absolutely. If you haven't <laughs> developed that and, like, you know, is this person, do they meet this criteria or not meet this criteria? And if so, don't be shy about saying, I don't think this is the best fit. Yep. You, saying no is the most powerful thing anyone in any uh, decision making, especially with clients, freelancers, I think, come to mind more than large companies. But definitely saying no is uh, it's powerful. There's it a weird makes you happier. It makes you happier. And there's another weird paradox, which is it makes them want to work with you more. It really does. Like whenever we say no to someone, they're like, well, why not? What's what's wrong with me? Do I have leprosy? What's what's the deal? It's the same and as then, waiting two days to call a date back. Yeah. And then they start like trying to talk you into it. And if you're not careful, you get sucked into the vortex. Mm -hmm. But once you've said no, that's it. You got to stick to it and say no, no, no. And just don't reply to emails. That's the hardest thing for me is just letting things sit or, you know, deleting an email that I feel obligated to respond to. Sometimes we'll give them to our competitors. We'll go let our competitors <laughs> deal with this guy. <laughs> Sabotage. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's switch to the top three picks because I have a feeling yours will be related to the conversation in some some way that will continue this conversation. Yes. So we will go back and forth one at a time and I'll let you start with your first top pick. So I found a book, uh, I found a series of three books, and these are my top three picks, and they are Jeff Bezos's top three picks. So Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, uh, when Amazon was just starting out, had three books that he wanted all of his executive team to read. He actually formed book groups to study these three books with his execs, I've tried to read all three of them. I have read all three of them, not just tried. And my first one is called The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Now, Peter Drucker was the bomb. He was the management genius. He was a brilliant writer and just like explained business and the art of management in such a clear way. The Effective Executive is all about how to be more effective in what you do especially for those of us who are in the digital space. He calls it knowledge workers. But he talks about uh, results, uh, effective results, sorry, effective executives are not defined by the quantity of their work, but by the results of their work. So to be effective, we don't have to do a lot of stuff. We have to do 
the stuff that matters. And this book is all about useful tips and takeaways on how to be more effective, not just getting stuff done, but getting the right stuff done and putting all the rest of the stuff aside. It's a great book about focusing and simplification. I, I can appreciate that. I, uh, I've never been a fan of quantity over quality. I've refused, I have I refused to work <laughs> because of that. <laughs> so I, I have the opposite problem. I, I like to do a lot of stuff. And so my challenge is streamlining what I do to the most important things and either delegating or, you know, just getting rid of the rest. So it's very useful for me. Nice. All How about right. you? What's your first pick? My first pick is going to be, okay, so I have been extremely busy working on code for the last few days, and there have been some major software releases that I love but have failed to write about. So I'm going to use my top three picks to talk about three of the best new apps that came out this week. Um, the first being Postbox. Uh, it's a it's Mozilla-based email client for both Mac and Windows, mm -hmm. and it is... It has over over the years it's become something way more than the original Java code base was. And it is a beautiful app and now it has just it has organization capabilities such as like topics which are uh, kind of between Gmail topics or Gmail labels and tagging. Yeah. And you can kind of well, keyboard shortcuts to move everything around and then you can sort things by uh um what do they call it? They have a word for you can use attributes and search based on, oh, I've forgotten how they phrase it, but basically you can kind of create automatic smart groups, topics, attributes, uh, favorited contacts, things like that, without having to develop the long uh, parameters that you would put into a smart mailbox in something like mail.app on Mac. Postbox. Yes, it's, it's, auto, it's an automatic way to really focus and search and make email more productive. What does it work with Gmail and Google apps? Yes. Yep. And will Gmail and Google apps create an identical version in six months mm, and call it I, Gmail? I, I doubt it. Gmail it's to totally has, new. Yeah, Gmail's acquired some good mail clients, but has killed them. And I I love Gmail's web interface. I really I enjoy the nerdiness and the keyboard shortcuts and everything. But I like native uh, email clients. Right now, I use Mailplane, which mm -hmm. is extremely hackable, and I have all the Gmail shortcuts and then some worked into it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love using it. But Postbox has always been impressive to me, and I'm really happy to see this new version. There is so much room for innovation in the email space. <laughs> there are so many failed attempts at it too. Yeah, yeah, but it's something that's so integral to what we do every day, and I'm just convinced that these new models are going to come up with something exciting. Yeah, the my problem with like Gmail's inbox is that it it does what I've always done, but it does it in a different way. So everything I have is not compatible. Mm -hmm. Like the new idea, the new models, the kind of filter, sort, and and react is it's ideal to me. That's the way I've always worked. They're just we need to narrow down the uh, the way we look at email to a single or a couple of, uh, I guess, techniques more than anything so that everything is compatible across your platforms. 
You know, it's a great mail client. Um, it's called AOL. 1995, and when you get a mail, it says, you've got mail. I'm familiar. It's great. It's so charming. That guy, he tells you, you've got mail. You don't even have to look at it. He just tells you, did you've you, got mail. I, I know you're joking, but did you see AOL's recent, uh, or more recent uh, email client setup? I have not seen that, What is it no. called? They, they put out, it was basically a whole new way to look at email. And I don't think it flew very far, but it was pretty cool. I was actually impressed to see that come from the company that kind of made email a joke for a while. Did it tell you, you've got mail? I I, I think there <laughs> was actually an Easter egg setting. I was working for AOL at the time that this came out. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they had worked in an Easter egg that would do that. Yeah. Sweet. Sweet. Okay. Number two for me is The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. So this was another one on Jeff Bezos's top three management books list. And I actually preferred the follow-up, which is called The Innovator's Solution by Clayton Christensen. Clayton Christensen is this Harvard Business School professor, but he talks about how do you innovate both as a large company, but even more interestingly, how do you innovate to compete with large companies? And I got so many takeaways from this book, but one of them was, when you're starting a new business, what you look for are the customers that the established players don't want. So you look for these tiny, small, <laughs> low value customers, or those that that's how your established competitor would perceive them. And then you go after them and serve them really well. And he uses lots of examples. He uses like, uh, Honda motorcycles, for example. So Honda came to the U.S. and started with these really small little motorcycles that, you know, couldn't compete at all with the big American Harley Davidsons. But it turns out they were perfect for people who needed light duty motorcycles for, to like run errands, especially in cities and things like that. Harley Davidson didn't want that business, so they let Honda have it. Well, Honda gains a foothold, and then before long, they start working their way up the ladder until finally they're too big to ignore, and they take over this huge chunk of the business. And you can see that pattern repeated in so many different industries with so many different types of products. So you look for the people that are being sort of either ignored or not adequately served by the people who are currently in charge in your industry, the big players, and you think, how could we do something that's just good enough for them to make them happy? And then from there, we can really start to grow. I love this book. Awesome. Those are the kind of things that I've given up on ever being smart enough to, uh, having enough business acumen to really do successfully. But maybe that's because I don't read the books. <laughs> well, this is a good one. I recommend it. Sounds good. I've, I think the last kind of uh, corporate knowledge book I read was probably David Allen's, but that's not even corporate. That's personal productivity. I, I don't getting, know, things do, getting things done by David Allen. Well, the uh, the newer one, uh, all together, bringing it all together. I should. Remember I think this. I think it's new and it's called Getting Shiznit Done. He he takes a more casual, modern approach. Right, right. And it's and it's getting with an apostrophe. Getting Shiznit Done. I think By that's, David uh, Allen. I think that was the comedian that get her done. Was that his take on it? <laughs> that was, yeah, 
Larry the Cable Guy. Larry the Cable Guy. I was going to say Larry the Plumber, and somehow I knew that wasn't right. Yes. Yes, I don't think he ever developed Get Her Done into a full productivity and speaking career, although that would have been very interesting. The Get Her Done Time Management Seminar in Seven Easy Lessons. I really don't find listening to him interesting enough to attend that, but I'm stuck up. You're not the target audience. Yeah, clearly. All right. So my second pick is a calendar app that's been around for a while and also just came out with a brand new version. It's called Horizon. It's Horizon. for iOS and it gives you weather forecasts. Every time you make an appointment, it shows you what the weather's going to be on that day at that time, at least as well as it can be predicted. And it will give you notifications if the weather changes for uh, an upcoming appointment. So you can kind of, uh, for anything especially that involves travel, or, or being outdoors in general. Uh, it's a really handy app. Plus it has uh, natural language input, kind of like Fantastical does, or even Calendar on uh, uh, Apple's Calendar does it now. But it has great natural language. And then uh, Smart Search, you can type in things like next free lunch, and it will show you, you know, it'll figure out what it is you want to search for. And uh, there's a, a full support for iCloud and CalDAV, and it's... It's a complete solution. I really like this one. So I could see it working for the next two weeks, but what about if you're planning your wedding date a year in the future? How does it handle the weather forecasting on long-term plans? It will tell you it's beautiful, and then uh, a week before it'll let you know that it's going to thunderstorm. (laughs) So basically it's always optimistic until the last minute. Yeah, things like this didn't exist when I planned anything a year in advance, so I haven't tested that. And I love the idea that you can just use natural language and ask it for your next free available moment. Yeah, the the natural language event creation is cool, but being able to just like naturally ask it without having to type in, what's my schedule at noon on Friday? Yeah. Nice. Can you use, can other people use that to book your time as well? No. Do you know what I mean? Can you share your calendar? No, it's just you for can, your own personal use. You can invite people, yeah. but it doesn't allow like uh, people to create events on your calendar unless it's like through a CalDAV sharing. All right. Horizon. Yeah. Horizon but, 3.0. That also sounds like the name of a rehab center. <laughs> just bringing it back. Bringing it back here. Doing the New segment. Horizons. <laughs> it's always like a sunset or a horizon or there's some nature motif or spa motif yeah 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 all right um, my th- my third pick is a book called the goal a process of ongoing improvement by Goldrat and cox and this is the third book on the jeff bezos big three the goal and this one i think you would enjoy right because This one is not a typical business book. It's a novel, and it's a story about this guy who's running a factory and he's having a problem getting the factory running successfully. And then he goes on this Boy Scout trip with his with his kids. This sounds really creepy now, doesn't it? He's like he's hanging out with the Boy Scouts. So he goes out. His son is a Boy Scout and they go out on this trip. And there's this fat kid named Herbie and Herbie as they're on this nature walk. Is holding up the whole Boy Scout line, and he suddenly has an epiphany, and he says, wait a minute, Herbie is like a limiting factor in our hike, 
because we're all slowed down to the process of Herbie, and he suddenly realizes, I could apply that to what's happening in the factory, where the slowest part of the system is slowing down the whole process. So if you are a freelancer, or you run a business, or you're a manager, or you are in charge of people in any way, I highly recommend The Goal. It is one of these super readable business books that has lots of actionable takeaways. I'm so sorry I just used that phrase, actionable takeaways. That's good I will never say synergy. that again. That's good synergy. Right. That's a new paradigm. No, I totally, this, this I can sink my teeth into. Uh, I've always, my entire life, even working factory jobs, actually, especially working factory jobs, have I spend all my time figuring out what the slow part of the system is. Like, I always thought I should be an efficiency expert. Yeah, that's operations. You could be an operations manager. I, w I would be good at it. Yeah, yeah. And can you apply that to your own business? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's how I make my living these days, is solving workflow slowdowns. Yeah, beautiful. All right. So then my last pick is going to be a new... Do you know who Max Sparky is, David Sparks? If I say no, will I offend him if he listens to this? Mm, I doubt it. He's, okay. he's a very um, level-headed person. But he is the guy who... Uh, well, I wrote uh, 60 tips with him, 60 Mac tips. And he does a field guide series. He also does Mac Power Users, if you've ever heard that podcast. But okay. as a PC user, you probably haven't. Anyway, he does these field guides, and he they focus on one topic at a time. And he's a brand new one out for Photos, which is on Mac, and you probably you probably never used it, and that's okay. But it's a huge Photos was a huge kind of change for Mac users in the way that they manage their photos, and this book has a very uh, in depth without being technical. Uh, look at all of the capabilities and how to use it. And it's $9.99, which is a great price for one of David's well-written books. So I do recommend checking that out. It's good to know authors. I, how do you mean? <laughs> it's good to be friends with authors, that's all. Yeah. Just thought <laughs> I'd make that observation. <laughs> I, I, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. No, it is. You can get signed copies of their books, and you don't have to pay them for it. Yeah, that's that's half my bookshelf, actually. Yeah, yeah. There's a funny thing about like when an author gives you a book. There's almost a feeling of like, well, I don't really have to read this because I didn't pay for it. If you go buy a book, you're like, well, I bought this. I I really should should read it now. So that's the weird paradox of of being an author. So you know, I think that. Uh, he should make sure not to give you any more books. He should make you pay for them. There are books on my shelf that were sent to me for free because I wrote part of them, uh -huh. and I haven't even read those. <laughs> so there could be typos in there. They could have completely well, I assume rewritten I had good it. editors, but yeah, they could have. The, the editing could have resulted in something I didn't even intend, and I wouldn't know because I just am really bad. I have like years worth of book guilt. Yeah. Like dating all the way back to an Amazon addiction I picked up after starting my first business. I have hardcover books on my shelf that have never been cracked open. Yeah. Unfinished tasks. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I let go of most of that guilt. It's out. It's off my to-do list now. Yeah. Yeah. The, we, we talk in, in mind hacking uh, about the, uh, the, the 
the the mental clutter of unfinished tasks. I actually think that's David Allen getting things done, uh, getting shiznit done, y'all. And he basically talks about mental clutter. And yeah, unread books are one of those many things that we have in our lives as like, it's an unclosed task loop. So I think that today I'm gonna give you a gift. I'm gonna say, Brett, you close all those unfinished tasks. You don't worry about any of those books on your shelf anymore. If you wanna read them, it's fine. No more guilt about those books. And I think that we should give everyone else uh, listening to this podcast, like it's like an absolution. You can absolutely stop any guilt. No more book guilt. Close all the loops. You don't have to read anything else ever again, including the ones I just mentioned. It's all read. Deal. Done. Absorbed through better. osmosis just by sitting by my bookshelf for too long. Feels better. Feels better. All right. Well... Thanks for being here. This was fun. You can be found on Twitter as Sir John Hargrave. And uh, and the book, Mind Hacking, is at, let's see, what is it? Mindhackii.ng. How, how, would you, how would you spell that out? We're trying to figure that out. It's mindhacky.ng. So in other words, <laughs> it's mindhacking with a .ng, no .com. Your audience is smart. They'll figure it out. Well, there will be a link in the show notes. Nice. And uh, is there anywhere else you want to mention that people can find you? Uh, well, you can always go to mediashower.com, which is our uh, content marketing company where I blog regularly. Awesome. All right. It's on the list. It will be in the links. And uh, yeah, and I'm Brett Terpstra. I'm TT Scoff everywhere if you want to find me. And I'm at brettterpstra.com where you can read where I usually blog all the time but have been sorely neglecting for one week now but yeah all right well that's a wrap and you have to head out i know you have a hard stop so i will uh i will wrap there and say thanks again for being here it's it this has been a very enlightening and fun conversation thanks brett and you know what what you're you're a good podcaster hey thanks you are i actually believe that i think uh it was accidental but somehow i got good at this you did you did thanks it was fun Yep. All right. Well, you have a great day. You too.